turn back to Romans 9. We are in Romans 9, and, and I know we have new people with us today. Um, if, you, if you use the analogy of, of walking into the ocean, right, you want to wade in the ocean, we're out in the middle of it right now. As far as theology goes, we're in the deep water out in Romans 9. Uh, we've covered a lot of ground in Romans. And um, if you haven't been with us, I would encourage you to start in the beginning and read through and up to where we are. And then all the sermons are, are on the website. Um, I'll try to connect this as best I can. But just know that you've jumped off the cruise ship into the middle of the ocean, theologically speaking. Um, we're in we're in some deep waters here, but good waters, waters that that are meant to because they're true, meant to undergird us and provide that security and stability that we need to live in faith in this fallen world full of struggle that we live in. I mean, I did another memorial service yesterday. A 29 year old man died in his sleep. So we never know. We're not promised tomorrow. But if we would own the fact that we know all things work together for good. See, we want that one. We like that one. We want it. That has to be undergirded with God's sovereignty and His power and His control. So we're in the middle of that in Romans 9. But I am going to start in verse 1 reading in Romans 9 and read through verse 24. And then we'll dig into what's probably the most, maybe the most controversial passage in this book or maybe even in the Bible. But I think when we see it rightly... It just shows us the goodness and grace and justice and mercy of our God and gives us that security in Him, not in ourselves, that we all need. But we'll start. We see Paul's burden for his brethren, the Jewish people, as we start. Romans 9, verse 1. I am speaking the truth in Christ, and I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. That I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said about this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a, shall have a son. And not only so, but also Rebecca, when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our father Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the hunger, the hunger. The, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. 
What shall we say then? Is there injustice in God? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use? And another vessel for dishonorable use or common use in A.S. What if God desiring to show his wrath prepared? What if God desiring to show his wrath to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us. Whom he has called, not from Jews only, but also from Gentiles. That's for God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, we need your spirit to attend your word and to apply it to our hearts. Help me to preach it rightly, truthfully, accurately. Help us to hear it with reverence as your word, seeking to understand it. And may your spirit. Illuminate it and bring application of it, Lord, to those, as I prayed before, who may not know Christ as Savior this morning and as Lord, that we pray that the Spirit would be at work in their hearts for conversion, for a turning, for a turning and trusting in Jesus. And those of us who do know you, Lord, grow us in grace. Rest us more on you and your mercy. May our hope and our strength and our passion And our security be more in you and less in us and anything else other than you. Lord, help me to preach your word in the power of the Spirit. Help us to hear it in the power of the Spirit. And rightly respond to it with humility, with a diligence to understand it, and with joy. Because of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in His name that we pray and ask for it and trust for it. Amen. God from all eternity, by the the most wise and holy counsel of His own will, freely and unchangeably did ordain whatsoever comes to pass. God, from all eternity, did by the most wise and holy counsel of His own will, freely and unchangeably, ordain whatsoever comes to pass. That's from the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 3, paragraph 1. And as you read that, let me remind you what R.C. Sproul says to this text. 
All we have said so far is that God is God. All we have said is that He is God. He is in control. He knows all and is over all and orchestrating all. He is sovereign and has ordained whatever comes to pass. Nothing slips up on him. Nothing surprises him. Nothing would cause him to change his mind. All we've said so far is that God is God. And that's what we see in Romans 9. But there's another section. Another half of that section. Let me read that. There's a yet that starts it. So he freely and unchangeably ordained whatsoever comes to pass. Now watch this. Yet. So as thereby, neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures. There's more. I'll let you go read it. So God is completely sovereign and has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. Yet he's not the author of sin, nor does he violate the will of the creature. So look at it. There you have it. Reformed confession, reformed theology. God is sovereign and man is responsible. His sovereignty doesn't wash out our responsibility. And our responsibility doesn't water down His sovereignty. Our, our freedom to make choices, choices that we desire to make, we, are, we do that and we are responsible for those choices, yet God is sovereign. We have free will, right? The freedom to choose. Not libertarian free will, right? That's a whole other discussion. But we have the freedom to choose underneath the umbrella of God's sovereignty. And God is able to work our choices into His plan to accomplish His good and gracious purpose. So you have errors on both sides of that. You would have a hyper-Calvinism that would wash out man's responsibility. It's all just God's fault. It's all just His doing. And that's kind of what we see people objecting from that stance in some of this. And then you have on the other side Arminianism, which watches out God's sovereignty in favor of man's responsibility. In other words, not able to hold these two in tension. Being more rationalistic than we should be, we have to figure out how all this works. No, we have to go as far as God's Word goes, and then we stop. Deuteronomy 29.29, the secret things... Belong to God. Why? Because He's mean? No. Because we're not infinite. We don't understand the way He does. But the things that are revealed, it says, belong to us and our children. So we have a sufficient revelation for life and godliness. We don't have an exhaustive one because we couldn't handle that. You know why? Because we're not God. I I don't know if you knew that. There is a God and it's not you. Okay? Own that. It'll help you, I promise. God is sovereign and man is responsible. And both are true. And this is what the Bible teaches. And this is Reformed theology, if you were wondering about that. And we see both of these in Romans. And right now, Paul is answering a question, and we'll get to that in a minute. But we're, the emphasis right now in Romans 9 is on God's sovereignty and His purpose and Him working out that good and glorious plan. And we're going to see it turn and talk more in, in chapter 10 and following about man's responsibility and how that fits together. And then we'll see how God's plan to save Jew and Gentile one, 
one new man was all glorious. And Paul ends that section in praise. But right now we're in a section that's talking about the doctrine of election. And we've seen it so far. You saw it as I read. Verses 1 to 5 in chapter 9 are Paul's burden. He's greatly grieved for his Israelite brothers according to the flesh. Brothers and sisters. Because Christ has come and Christ is the Jewish Messiah. And yet most of the Jews have rejected their Messiah. So Paul has a great love for them and a great burden for them. Verses 1 to 5. Whole sermon about that I'll point you back to listen to. And then in verse 6, he begins to answer this question. Uh, Paul's question maybe that he's posing in those first five verses is, why haven't all the Jews believed? And it's true that most of the Jews had not believed, but he turns a corner here in verse 6 when he says, it's not as though the word of God has failed. So that's a, that's a statement. That's our thesis statement. You want to know what the main point of chapters 9 to 11 is? That's it. The word of God has not failed. Why? Because God's not just some concept man made up. He's true and living God. He's revealed it clearly in creation and especially in His Word and preeminently in His Son. He's in control. He's sent His Word forth and it has not failed. And it's proved by the resurrection of Christ. God's Word has not failed. That's our thesis statement. And then in verses 6 to 13, we saw that it hasn't failed because the promise was to the children of promise. The children of promise, if you want to say elect there, you can. Same thing. They have believed. The remnant chosen according to grace as we get to chapter 11. We'll see remnant language in the end of of chapter 9. They have believed. God's word hasn't failed. And God has a purpose in it. Right? And then in 14 to 18, last time, God's sovereign mercy. And last time we saw man's first objection. There was a, there was an, Paul anticipated an objection because he's talking about election. He's talking about God's choice of individuals primarily. And yes, flowing through them, God's purposes. And so his first objection that he anticipated in verse 14 was, is there injustice in God? You might have heard it this way when, if somebody talks to you about the doctrine of election or you've talked to somebody else about the doctrine of election, most of the time, the first response you're going to get, that's not fair. And you're right. They both should have been hated. Jacob and Esau both should have been hated. None deserves mercy. We're all sinners. We fall short. We've talked about that. I'll point you back to that sermon. But that was the first objection. And then today's objection that we're going to see is the second one we hear all the, all the time. Well, that makes us robots. We'll look at that as we dig into it. But in 9.19 to 23, that's what we're going to look at this morning. Uh, We have the second objection, then we have a rebuke for that objection, and then he does graciously provide some answer there. So the main point is, and let me just say, y'all might be in trouble this morning. I had a lady come up to me after the sermon last week and say, I have a problem with your preaching. And I said, oh yeah, what is that? She said, you don't preach long enough. Boy, you know what that does to a preacher. So you might be in trouble. Now, these are deep waters. I want to handle them well. But listen, you don't have to be in a hurry. We're going to feed you lunch. Nowhere to go. So, so kids, kids, don't worry. It won't be two hours, I promise you. Not unless somebody says that again. Main point, God is, God is just in saving some of the Jews 
And some of the Gentiles known in this text are known here as the vessel of mercy, vessels of mercy. And please, if you're just jumping in the middle with us, please read the rest of the book of Romans. And please listen to some of the previous sermons because there's a lot of ground we've covered. And I feel for you if, you're, if this is the first time you've sat in on this study with us. A lot of context you need coming into this. God is just in saving some of the Jews and some of the Gentiles known here as vessels of mercy. Quick question of review. Who deserves mercy? Who deserves justice? Y'all were a little weaker on that side. Who does? Everybody, including me. Yeah, us. We all we all deserve justice. We've sinned and fallen short of God's glory. We saw that earlier in Romans. But today we're looking here, and I, that will cause me to preach two hours if I don't zone in here. But look at this. This is the second objection. This is my first point. But I've called this man putting God in the dock, and you know, coming from C.S. Lewis language and all of that. And I'll explain it. But man putting God in the dock in verse 19. So then, let me read 18 and then into 19. 18, so then, this is the conclusion of the previous one. He has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. We all deserve hardening, none deserve mercy. Remember that. But look at this objection then. Verse 19, man's objection. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Who, for who can resist his will? So we've seen the objection. That's not fair. Paul anticipates the right objections if we're talking about individuals. And the second objection is here. This makes me a robot. If what you're saying is true, Paul, and if it's all up to God's will, then we're just robots. We're just puppets. We, we, we're just doing what he makes us do. What, what are we subtly saying when we say that? God is responsible for my unbelief. God is responsible for my sin. I can only do what he wills me to do, so I'm not responsible. He is. That's as old as the garden, isn't it? Blame shifting. Putting the blame on God, ultimately. We try to blame God for our rebellion. We try to blame God for our sin. Especially, not, not as much believers, but unbelievers. And especially, sort of, um, well, I won't go there. But what we're saying is, my sin and unbelief is God's fault and it's as old as the garden. What did Adam say after they fell into sin? It was that woman that... You gave me. God, I wouldn't have done that if you hadn't made a mistake. You gave me the wrong woman. And that woman made me sin. And husbands, before you say amen, your wife cannot make you sin. She might turn up the heat a little bit and reveal who you really are. But she cannot make you sin and vice versa. And that's marriage counseling and we can move on from there. But just as Adam was blaming God, this objector that Paul anticipates is saying, hey, I'm off the hook. It's his will. I'm just doing what his will is. He's responsible. God is sovereign and God is responsible. Notice how we missed the second half of the... And just to show you that this is, a, this is, this is an objection we hear when we talk to people about this stuff. 
right? But this is, this is portraying man's arrogance. His arrogance. And let me say before we deal on with this, this does not mean that all questions are wrong. You see lots of questions in the Bible where people are struggling or suffering and saying, God, how long or why? Or, or even Mary, in distinction from Zechariah, her question wasn't uh, whether or not it was going to happen. It was a process question. I don't understand how this is going to happen. And, and graciously, the angel explained that to her. But Zechariah in a shut up because he doubted that it was going to happen. But that's on a whole other thing. So humble, humble questions, humble process questions are all through the Bible. But this is this is more like an unbelieving accusation. This is an affront to God. This is an arrogant, unbelieving question that seeks to call God to account and blame my sin on him. And this is why I said that this is man putting God in the dock. And that's English language, right? It's courtroom language. And in a courtroom, the dock would be the place reserved for the defendant. The dock is what we would see as the witness chair, right? Where you put a person in there and then they get asked questions and they have to answer those questions. And they swear to tell the truth and nothing but the truth. So to put God in the dock is to take the judge off the bench and put him in the witness chair. It's to assault his authority as the judge. And this is an assault on God's authority as God. It's taking him off the bench where he rules and seeking to make him justify himself to me. Arrogantly questioning his ways. Imagine that you were on trial. You are the defendant. You are accused of a certain crime. Right? And you know in a courtroom that unless you're asked to, you're to zip it. Your attorney speaks for you and everything is in deference to the judge and his authority. Imagine that you suddenly just start speaking up and challenging the judge and blaming your crime on him. What might happen to you in that courtroom? You might get muzzled. You probably charged with contempt. You probably locked up in the jail for doing such a thing. See, Romans 19 is throw, 919 is flowing out of verse 8, 8 verse 8, 918. Saying, if God has mercy on whom He will and hardens whom He will, then we're puppets and we're robots and He is the one responsible for our decisions. And we don't need any more proof to say that this is kind of an arrogant assault on God's authority to, than just to keep reading. So that's God seeking, man seeking to put God in the dock. Man seeking to make God justify himself to man. Man assuming that he has the ability and the authority to question what God has done. And to blame his sin on God and, and say that, well then, I'm just not responsible, I'm a robot. Look at number, point number two. Putting man back in the dock. So this is a clapback. This is what might happen in a courtroom when you challenge that judge's authority. Right? You get a you get a reminder of who you are in that setting. Look at look at verse verse 20. 
But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Paul didn't like that anticipated objection. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit being the Word of God, God is showing us lovingly because we need to hear it and we need to submit to it that He is God and we are not. But look at that question. Who are you? You you would stand up and demand an answer from God? You would actually stand up and try to blame your sin on God? I, I, I sin because God made me this way. God's willed it to be. Who are you to ask God to give an account? God never allows Himself to be brought under the authority of man. And you would not want Him to do so. If He did, He wouldn't be God. Look at that question. Who are you, O man, woman, boy, or girl? Who are you, O creature, created to question the Creator? That's a good question, isn't it? Even the who sang a song about that, didn't they? Y'all remember that? Who are you? Who, 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 who? I really want to know. Yes, I'm dating myself. A lot of the kids don't know what I'm talking about. but It is a good question. It is a question I should ask myself. Who am I? In the presence of God, who am I? Isaiah got a reminder, didn't he? He saw the Lord high and lifted up, and what did he do? I'm going to call you into account. He said, woe is me. I'm going to shut up. That's what he... But let's, let's just think about that a minute. Who is God and who is man? God is the Creator and man is the created. Right? Big circle. God, Creator. Little circle. Creation. Part of that little circle. Man. God is Creator and we are created. God is infinite. And we are finite. God is self-sufficient. We are totally dependent upon God. The breaths you've taken since you walked in the building, the heartbeats that you've had, all come from this great and glorious first cause, which is God sustaining all things. So man, God is creator, infinite and self-sufficient. Man is created, finite and dependent. God is all-knowing. Man is small-knowing. Little knowing. I've used this illustration before, and you can't illustrate infinity, but imagine all of the walls in this room represent the infinite knowledge of God. In comparison to that infinite knowledge, if you were to put my knowledge on the wall, let's just put all of our knowledge combined on the wall, how much room would it take up in comparison to an infinitely? Yeah, I mean, if we were going to be generous, we'd put a dot, right? And that'd be generous. So this little, 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 little pea brain is going to call into question. I know this is deep water and I know it's a struggle, but one of the things it's meant to do is humble us. And if we'll own it, it'll humble us. 
So God is all-knowing and man is small-knowing. Now watch this. God never does wrong. He is holy and just and righteous and pure. Never doing wrong. Never sinning against anyone. Never causing anyone to sin. God is never wrong and man is often wrong. If you don't think you're never... Listen, if you think you are never wrong... You should know different. And you will learn different when you get married. But until then, take my word for it. You're often wrong. Think about See how silly that is? For this little ant to, to question and challenge the Creator of the universe and try to blame its sin on the Creator of the universe. We know we do what we want to do. We try to explain that away sometimes. But God says, who are you? Oh man, you need to step back and remember who you are and who it is you are challenging here. That's really what happened. Although Job was suffering, Job did have some questions. And Job had some why questions. But God answered Job's why questions, not with answers to the why questions, but with the answer to the who question. God showed Job who he was. And what did Job do at the end of that? Put his hand over his mouth. Or as the old preacher said, God put him in a shut up. And that's a good place for us to be. To remember that we are created, we are creatures, we are sinful creatures, we are little knowing creatures who are often wrong. We should dare never try to hold the Lord to our account. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Now watch, he's going to give us an illustration and then apply that illustration. So I don't have to come up with a lot of illustrations this morning, it's right here. What What does he follow that up with? He says, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Verse 20. Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has not the pot... Now watch this. The the freedom of the potter. The rights of the potter. Imagine a lump of clay and a potter and a wheel. Who decides how that clay is going to be shaped? Not the clay. Right? Watch this. Has, has the potter no right over the clay, verse 21, to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable, or the NAS translates that common. It's comparison with honorable there. So imagine, when the potter is sitting down to, to make a vessel, in his mind he has planned to make a, a, a beautiful vase for flowers. And that, that vase is shaped and fired and maybe painted and it's meant to be a, a vase. And then he sits down at the potter's wheel and the next thing he's going to make is a potty. Maybe being real, more useful, but it's not a beautiful vase. But who decides whether he's going to make a vase or a potty? The potter. That's the point. The potter is the one who has the design and executes the design. So has not the potter no right over the clay to make the same lump, uh, one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable or common use? And the answer to that question is expected to be yes, the potter has that right. 
The potter has that right. Here's a couple other texts, and maybe one of them is a little bit humorous. But Isaiah 29:16. See, this potter and, and clay analogy is not a new thing. Paul's drawing on what he knows from the Old Testament. But God speaking to Israel and using the analogy in Isaiah 29:16 says, Look, you turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should say of its maker? Now, watch this. He did not make me. A lot of pots are saying that these days. He did not make me. Or the thing formed say to him who formed it. Well, he has no understanding. I know better how this should turn out. I told you before the, the anonymous saying, if you gave me God's power, you'd see how much I would change. But if you gave me his wisdom too, you would see how I left everything the same. But sometimes the clay gets a little haughty and acts like the potter didn't make it or calls into question his design. He, ha- he really doesn't know what he's doing. It's kind of like what's happening in Romans with that accusatory question. Now, look at Isaiah 45, 9 later. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? What's the expected answer to that? No, it doesn't. Or, look at, this is pretty cool. Your work has no handles. Well, it wasn't supposed to. Right? I don't like your design, God. I'm able to tell you how to do it better. Who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? In the analogy, in case you have me, that I have to explain this, the potter's God and the clay is you. The clay is man. Criticizing the potter in this anticipated objection. Now, Here's where we get into the, the controversial part, if we're going to be a controversial part. And listen, when you, if you do come to this verse and you just pluck it out of its context, you'll make it way more controversial than it really should be. But it's deep water, no doubt. It's, it's really asking us, God, do you trust me? Do you believe I'm all-knowing? Do you believe I'm good and just and righteous and holy and pure and able and never do wrong, always do right, have authority over the creation And I will accomplish my purpose with my word. I guess one of the lessons here, if sometimes we need a smack on the forehead, stop questioning me and trust me. And if you want to know if you can trust God, look to the cross. Look to the cross where he crucified his son in order to save his people. You see, justice and mercy meet there. We'll talk more about that. Do you trust me is the question we've all are, all are always being asked by God. Now watch this, how he applies that illustration. What if God, desiring to reveal, let me just stop, desiring to reveal as much as we can handle about who he is as finite creatures. That's what we have in the Word. But we're focusing in a little bit. Now, he, he doesn't, we don't deserve an answer. After rebuke, rebuking the arrogance of that kind of question. He's going to come back. He's given an illustration. He is going to give a bit of an answer. And then we're going to flow out of this into the text that come after it. So this is just a portion. But look what it says. What if God, desiring to to show His wrath, you could substitute justice there, 
We've talked about justice a lot. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? God, on the one hand, for the, the, he is revealing his righteousness, his holiness, his justice. The fact that the response of a holy God to sin must be one of judgment and condemnation. Sin must be punished. It cannot just be swept under the rug. We've seen that already in our study. But one of the things on one side, his justice is being revealed. He's showing his wrath, making his power known. And it says this. What if this is what he's up to, right, on one side? And he has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. God. One of the things we learn from him bearing long with sinners is the doctrine of his long suffering, right? Patience. Long suffering. And in the process, it reveals his power, his justice, his just wrath. Some of us are scared to talk about wrath. We're afraid of what people will think. A lot of preachers will never preach and use the word hell or wrath. And if we won't, we should step down. Because without the bad news of what we deserve, the gospel is not good news. It's just life improvement. And that's not what it's meant for. Okay. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make his power known, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? So bringing forward the potter analogy, this group of vessels, when it says vessels of wrath, that means these vessels deserve that wrath. And I think back to Esau. Pharaoh and the progress of the argument in chapter 9. Jacob was loved. Esau was hated. Jacob was chosen. Esau was not. Neither deserved to be chosen. Both deserved to be rejected. But God in His mercy is saving a people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. And He's working through these people to accomplish His purpose. None of whom deserve the good that He gives. But these are vessels that are ready for wrath. Ripe for wrath. The, the next word, prepared for destruction. I can't go into that a lot, but the ESV didn't do you any favors today. Because look, in verse 22, it says prepared for destruction. And down in verse 23, it says prepared beforehand for glory. That's two different words. It's not the same word. Right? Yes, God is sovereign over and has chosen and not chosen and all of that. But some of your translations, if you have a King James, it'll say right here, it'll say fitted, fitted for destruction. And that's a good translation of the word. It's pro- they're fitted for destruction. In other words, these, these vessels are completely adequate for the thing. They're completely qualified for the thing. There's, there's no subject stated here. And you can see that related in the text. In verse 22, there's no subject of the verb stated. Right? It is a passive verb. Some argue whether it's middle. They've prepared themselves or fitted themselves, but that's probably not right. 
They're fitted by their own rebellion and by God's just, just, just judgment of that rebellion for wrath. But God is patient in bringing about that because he has a purpose. So let's let's just remember, it doesn't say there in the Greek, he prepared them for destruction. The, the, the subject's not there. There's a lot of debate about this verse on exactly how to bring this together. But like if we look up and see uh, hated and loved, you know, chosen and not, that kind of thing. We see God is sovereign over all of this. But these vessels deserve condemnation, number one. Because of their sin. So let's remember what we know. There is real guilt in everyone born. All We are all born in sin. Paul said in chapter 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, punishment, wrath, spiritual death, physical death, we saw in chapter 6. All born deserve wrath. And none can blame God for it. He is not responsible for our sin. You can go read James chapter 1 if you want to. I don't have time to go there. But there's real guilt in everyone. Number two, none deserve mercy. He's just in giving mercy to some and not to all. If you struggle with that, listen to the previous sermons. I I went into that more deeply. And number three, anyone not receiving mercy gets justice, not injustice. We all should be condemned. And His condemnation is just because of our sin. His wrath toward us is just because He's a holy God and our sin deserves that. Anyone not receiving mercy gets justice. So there's real guilt. There's no repentance. Therefore, there's no salvation. Man's will is in bondage to sin. They don't turn to Christ because they will not turn to Christ. Right? All deserve to be vessels of wrath. Look at uh, Ephesians 2.3 and go read Ephesians again on your own. I don't have time to do this this morning. I'm, I'm really trying to press. But Ephesians 2.3 talks about who we were before we were converted, right? And then walking in the ways of the world and in the ways of sin. And then in verse 3, it, it says we, if you want to put we there, it's still describing believers before Christ. Look what they were. Were by nature Children of wrath. Vessels of wrath. Like the rest of mankind. So vessels of wrath are truly guilty, righteously and righteously foreordained to justice. So they're fitted by their own sin and that's confirmed by God's sovereign ordination. But anybody who's outside of God, who is rejected by God, it is because... They are responsible for their sin and turning. You cannot, we cannot blame our sin on God's sovereignty. That's what a preacher I used to hear sit under called sinning with the sovereignty of God. But God has a purpose and it's not just to be wrathful. But he is, he, he is revealing his justice because without a revelation of justice, there can really be no revelation of mercy. Think about, I've used this illustration before, but let's use it for this. If you take a, a, a diamond, and you put it on clear plastic, it doesn't show up nearly as well. Or if you put it up on a white sheet of paper. But if that diamond is put on a black cloth, it's what they do in the jewelry store so that you can see all the beauty and the facets of the diamond. With the backdrop of God's justice, which is true, now we have this diamond of mercy laid upon it. It comes to life. So look, look what he says. 
God has a purpose in all of this. His overarching purpose is told to us. His overarching purpose for everything. The reason creation is still here, right? It's because this is what he's accomplishing in verse 23. Look, he's born with much patience those who deserve wrath. He's working out his plan of redemption. Look what he says in verse 23. In order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. This is happening in order to make known the riches of His glory for the vessels of mercy. Vessels of mercy like Abraham, like Isaac, like Jacob, like Israel delivered under Pharaoh. The big purpose of everything is to make known the riches of His glory and grace in Christ Jesus. Vessels of mercy, which now there is a subject in the original here. And there is, when it says, the ESV says prepared beforehand, that's one word in the Greek, okay? And it's a different word from prepared in 22. I can't go back there. In order to make known the riches of His glory for the vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory. He prepared them. He made them ready in advance. He makes the difference. That's been the whole point. What makes the difference? God doesn't look to us and our works and our decisions to decide what He's going to do. His grace is based on His grace. It's based on Himself. He's sovereign over His mercy. And He has mercy on whom He will. And here we have the vessels of mercy or the elect or however you want to picture that put forward. That God has prepared them beforehand for glory. You see this in Ephesians. You see it in all. You see it all over Scripture. Once you really, once you really see it, He has prepared beforehand these vessels of mercy. So the subject stated is God. God is the one who prepared beforehand. He chose. He foreordained. Remember what we read. For mercy in Christ. Remember what I said. We want the text in eight twenty eight that for those who. No, God, all things work together for good. But it connects to verses 29 and 30. This is how we know that's true. God's sovereignty in whom He saves His, His vessels of mercy. But we're going to look back at it right quick. Verse 28, God works all things together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Right? In Christ Jesus. 29 to 30. For those whom He foreknew. And remember we talked about that word foreknow and how know in the Old Testament means the intimacy between husband and wife that produces a child. God foreloved people, not things. He didn't set it. It's not events that He foreknew. It was people. He set His love on His people before the foundation of the world. And He also predestined them to be conformed into the image of His Son in order that He, the Son, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brethren. Now watch this. Those whom he predestined, he also called. So he, he, he provides all the means to the end that he has foreordained. He called, and we talked about that being an effectual call. When I preach the gospel on Sunday, I call to all of you to turn and trust in Christ. And some of you already have. Right? And in the midst of that call and that gospel being preached, the Spirit's at work in particular hearts. And on their particular day, he calls them. To faith. This is an effective call to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that in order that He might be the firstborn among many brethren, those He predestined, He called, those whom He called, now watch this, I told you it was an effectual call. Those whom He called, He justified. 
He brought them to faith in Jesus, united them with Jesus, forgave them of all of our sins, credited Jesus' righteousness to them so that God the judge could look over them and say, righteous and adopt us into his family. Those whom he justified, he glorified. He finished the work. And listen, maybe this is a lot of theology. Maybe you're new to it. Maybe it's going over your head or your eyes are glazing over. If you don't remember anything else I've said this morning, remember this. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's why He came. Christ was, He didn't come straight from heaven onto the cross. He was born in a low estate, in a manger, laid in a feed trough, very humbly. He was born under His own law and He fulfilled all righteousness. He kept the law in thought, word, and deed because we had broken it. And then He took our guilt upon Himself and paid the penalty on the cross. That was what was happening on the cross. As Christ died horribly physically, the physical suffering was terrible, but it was nothing in compared to the wrath due us being poured out on Him on that cross. And because He was God and man in one person, He could drink that eternal hell, that cup, that eternal condemnation due us. He could drink that cup dry in a matter of hours there. And before He left the cross, He said, it is finished. And He passed through the grave. He was under the power of death for a time. And then the third day, He rose again, proving it all true. With His disciples for over 40 days after His resurrection, appeared to more than 500 people at once one time, then ascended into heaven. And like He went, He's coming again. The Scripture says Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried and He was raised the third day in accord with the Scriptures. And this is the good news, that if you believe and trust in Jesus, you will be saved. All those whom He justified, He glorified. The way we know all things work together for good is because God is sovereign and He's sovereign in salvation. We are His children because we are vessels of mercy prepared beforehand. And it it is to us that He delights to give His kingdom. You can never go before God and say, I would have believed, but I wasn't elect. See, that's another way to blame God. No, if you won't believe, it's because you won't believe. It's because you refuse to. You are walking in willful unbelief in favor of your own self and your own preferred path of life. We, I remember this. I was converted at 26. I, I made fun of church people. I was going the way I was going because I loved my sin. And I would justify that in all kinds of ways until God changed my heart. And change that love of sin to conviction over it and hatred of it such that I turn by His grace from it and trusted in Christ. That's what's happened in each one of our lives who are trusting in Jesus. Have you repented? Turn. Have you had that change in the direction of your soul that results in a change in life first expressed by trusting in Christ and in Christ alone? If you are trusting in Christ this morning, regardless of how much you understand all of this theology, you are God's child and you will be glorified. You are a vessel of mercy. You are secure in Him. If you are not trusting in Christ this morning, God's loving but faithful command to you, Acts 17, 30 and 31, His command is repent and believe in my Son. He will refuse none who come to Him in faith. I mean, we know we come to Him in faith because He's at work in us, but 
Don't just slough off conviction of sin. Don't just refuse and stiff arm the spirit if he's working in your heart calling you to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why we have these doctrines of God's sovereignty. is so that we might rest in Him. And know that our salvation wasn't our idea. It wasn't our work. It wasn't because we decided to do it. It's because He's done it. Therefore, we are secure in Him. And the soul He justified, He will sanctify. And He will eventually glorify. And the vessels of mercy will hear this from His lips. Matthew 25, talking about God's judgment, final judgment. In verse 34, it says, after the goats, the vessels of wrath, and all the pictures right there, right? Then you have the vessels of mercy. Look what he says in verse 25. I mean, verse 34 of chapter 25. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, come, you who were smarter than others and decided to trust in Christ. You did trust in Christ, but it was because God's work in you. Look what he says. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, to inherit the kingdom. Watch this. Prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. It is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Vessels of mercy, truly guilty before God, but foreordained for mercy and brought to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. From the Jews, from the Gentiles, we'll see that next week as we move on. But in verse 24, even he's talking about who are the vessels of mercy, those he's prepared, even us whom he called. That goes back to 8, 28 through 30. Not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. And we'll begin to break that out. But let me me give you a few points of um, application as we move closer to that two-hour sermon. Um, No. First one, God is creator and judge, not man. Man has no right to demand that God give an account for himself. Creation clearly proclaims the existence of God. If you don't see it, it's because of sin and hardness of heart and captivity and refusal to see it. But mankind has no right to call God to account. You will never be able to stand before God and say, you didn't give me enough. Some people actually, Scripture says this, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If we approach God in a proud manner, we will not get grace. We'll get justice, which is what we deserve. And remember, I didn't say he won't answer any of your questions, but this proud approach is not blessed by him. People actually say, you've heard people say this. If there is a God and I stand before Him, I will say to Him, you should have given me more proof. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? He he owes you nothing. He's under no obligation to explain anything to you. His creation clearly portrays His existence. And on top of that, His Son came to show forth who He is. And He lived and He died and He was buried. And He rose the third day from the grave, proving it is all true. So don't you dare come before God with that kind of attitude. You will be justly condemned. You can howl all you want to. But I would suggest that you don't take that approach. You have all of the proof you need. God's answer to that kind of proud approach will be, who are you? 
to call me into question. Listen, look at me. God doesn't owe you any explanation of anything. We are so spiritually entitled. That's part of being the natural man and born in sin and living in this foolish world. God owes us justice. But mercy is before you. Will you get over yourself and humble yourself and turn and trust in the Christ who has proven himself to be a worthy king and savior? What other king would pay the penalty for your sins in hell and be raised from the grave and offer you a free gift of salvation? And you're going to stand back and put your hands on your hips and demand more. Wicked. Wicked. Wicked little small knowing creature seeking to call his creator into account. You are standing before the living God, hearing Him call you to faith this morning. How will you respond? Please don't ignore Him. I'm not saying I'm God. His Word is calling you to faith. Cindy will tell you I'm not God. But own who you are. A creature. A sinful creature. Maybe a confused creature. But one who needs mercy. And that mercy is available in Christ Jesus. Turn to Him. And trust in Him. Or you might be the one I'm standing beside giving a memorial for. Listen, I've had enough of those lately. Please stop it. For a while. <laughs> like five in a row. <laughs> and and don't, not a lot of people in church, but acquaintances of people in the church and, and various things. And great gospel opportunity, but... I'm a little tired of doing those. (laughs) I'm going to call on one of the other guys to do some of that sometime. Number two, God is sovereign over mercy and owes it to no one. The reason some of the Jews believe is is that only some of the Jews were vessels of mercy. Why don't all the Jews believe? God's word hasn't failed. The children of promise have come to faith. Like some of the Gentiles, we'll see as we move forward. None would believe without the new birth. God is sovereign over mercy. Number three, man is responsible. Man is responsible to flee from the wrath to come. And we choose not to do so apart from grace. Don't be happy and content if you think the gospel is foolishness. Because that's what God said the natural man would think about the gospel. Go read 1 Corinthians. God is sovereign. Man is responsible. We must, we are commanded to, and we must, if we would be saved, turn and trust in Jesus. And that opportunity is before you this morning. Number four, the vessels of mercy are the ones from among the Jews and the Gentiles who by God's grace alone are born again and respond in faith in Jesus Christ. How about you this morning? Are you trusting And resting your hope for salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope so. Number five and last. Without the revelation of justice, there could be no revelation of mercy. Our knowledge of and our comfort in His mercy is fueled by a realization of what we deserve. If we didn't know anything about God's justice... His holiness, His righteousness, His wrath. 
then we don't have a chance for a gospel. Because if there is no revelation of justice, there is no cross on which the King of glory would die and reveal His heart of just mercy towards those who fear Him and those who will trust in Him. Will you trust in Him? If so, you can rest. If not, you can't blame it on Him. You must own your responsibility before God. Those who trust Him. I'm going to skip over the rest of the confession, Ian, and just go straight to the quote. But those who trust Him are the vessels of mercy. Yes, we deserved wrath, but we've received mercy due to God's sovereign grace in Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But remember, we can never call God into question. God doesn't answer to us. That's not the way it works. That's turning things upside down as he told Israel. Look, what, look after Nebuchadnezzar got over his fit of pride... Look what conclusion he came to in the second half of verse 34 and 35 in Daniel. Daniel 4, 34b and 35 telling us who God is. Look at this. His dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. In other words, he doesn't consult us to decide what he's going to do. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven, among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can call him to count. Look, none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Humbly bow before the Lord of glory and find mercy and grace to help, yes, with your salvation and then following after that with your times of need. To live as Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the hard things in your word. We need to be stretched. We need to be humbled. We need to know you as you really are. And we even now, even if we know the entire Bible, we're just scratching the surface of our infinitely holy, pure, righteous, merciful, just, gracious, saving God. But help us, Lord, to bear along with your word to pray over Your Word, to read Your Word, to look to You and pray for Your Spirit to apply it to our hearts and to teach us. Lord, if we, if we struggle with the doctrine of election, help us to, in patience, plow through Your Word, seeing if it is true. And if we believe it, the last thing we should be is proud. Help, us to, help it to make us humble and generous servants of our brothers and sisters and of the lost who don't know You. Gracious and faithful bearers of this gospel light that has been entrusted to us. Lord, I pray for those who don't know You this morning that You would work in their hearts for salvation according to Your will. For those of us who do know You, that You would even humble us more as a result of today, grow us more, make us more loving and gracious and faithful as a result of sitting under Your Word. Bless us with your truth, Lord, and lead us in your paths for your glory, for our good, for your name's sake. It is in Jesus' holy name.